Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Economics for Rebels, the podcast series of the European Society for Ecological Economics. Not too long ago, it was an act of rebellion to pursue economics as if nature mattered. This rebellion continues. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring the economics of just and sustainable transformations. Conversations with and for those who are ready to act on rapid and radical change for people and planet. Welcome to our podcast. I am your host, Alexandra Kovash, and you are listening to the Economics for Rebels podcast. Degrowth is a research field and a social movement that aims to transcend the primacy of economic growth and transition societies to an ecologically more sustainable and socially more just world. Overcoming our environmental sustainability hurdles through mainstream approaches like eco-modernization does not even try to tackle the problems of social injustices like inequality. Today's guest, Jason Hickel, argues that the root of environmental and social problems is the same, and through degrowth, we can address both of them at the same time. In this episode, we talk about the solutions suggested by degrowth to both sustainability and more equality. Jason is an economic anthropologist, a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, He's a visiting senior fellow at the International Inequalities Institute at the London School of Economics and professor at the Institute for Environmental Science and Technology at the Autonomous University of Barcelona. He's author of numerous highly popular books like The Divide, A Brief Guide to Global Inequality and Its Solutions, and Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World. Welcome, Jason. Uh, hello, thanks for having me. When someone uh, dares to blame capitalism for um, environmental havoc and, and social injustice, um, the argument I tend to hear the most is that, you know, since 1990, capitalism has achieved to elevate almost 2 billion people out of poverty, and the world has reached material wealth like never before in the history of humankind. What would you respond to such arguments? Yes, this is really interesting. Um, whenever you point out that capitalism is driving uh, ecological breakdown, then people will immediately say, well, okay, maybe, but look at what it's done for society and shouldn't we be, uh, be concerned about, about abandoning that kind of progress, right? Specifically with, with respect to the question of poverty. Um, so uh, I think there are several important things to say here. Um, and it all, bo it, it basically boils down to the fact that uh, even when it comes to the question of poverty eradication, Capitalism has not been uh, as effective as uh, as things might appear. Um, now, first of all, let's let's of course acknowledge the fact that clearly capitalism is an incredibly productive system, right? There's there's obviously no doubt about that. But whether or not it actually meets human needs and specifically the needs of the poor is quite another matter. It, it, it's uh, it's really an empirical question that needs an empirical analysis. Um, so the dominance narrative about gains against poverty that's out there right now relies on the World Bank's poverty line of $1.90 per day, right? Which we're all accustomed to hearing. And we know, of course, that since 1980, when records began, the number of people living on less than this threshold has declined from about 1.9 billion people to about 740 million people. So um, in other words, a little bit more than 1 billion people have moved over the $1.90 threshold. And of course, that's great news. But here's the key thing to know. This threshold, this $1.90 threshold, is not actually grounded in any empirical concept of human needs. Okay? 
Okay. So in other words, there's no evidence that that amount of money, $1.90, is actually adequate for people to achieve uh, basic nutrition and clothing and shelter, et cetera, et cetera. So from this crucial respect, it's arbitrary. In, in fact, in this respect, it's not actually a poverty line. Um, and it's also extremely low, right? So $1.90 in purchasing power parity terms, people often assume that this is what an, an American tourist could buy in, say, India or in Sudan, which is maybe like, you know, not so bad. <laughs> but in reality, what it represents is what um, Americans can buy in the United States with $1.90. So an extremely small amount, barely enough for bread, uh, definitely not enough for rent, okay? So... Um, now, crucially, we know from empirical studies that people need several times more than this amount to achieve things like decent nutrition and to meet other uh, basic human needs, right? So scholars that have investigated this propose more empirically grounded poverty lines, including $5 a day, uh, $7.40 uh, $7 a day, and, uh, and $10 a day. So that's kind of the range of empirical lines that scholars use. So um, in light of this, what the World Bank narrative actually tells us is simply that the purchasing power of the poor has increased <laughs> over the past couple of decades. But it does not tell us whether that increase has been enough for them to actually escape poverty in empirical terms. So if we use the $7.40 per day threshold, um, which is associated with, uh, with uh, decent nutrition and, uh, and gains against, um, against mortality, we see that the number of people in poverty has actually increased over this period, right? By about uh, 1 billion people. And while the prevalence of poverty has declined, even according to that threshold, um, the decline has been by very modest amounts, okay? So that today, more than half of the human population continues to live in poverty. And, and that's, that's huge. That's a, that's a significant problem we have to acknowledge. Um, so I think the main uh, takeaway point here is simply that progress against poverty has really not been as dramatic as the dominant narrative would have it. Um, clearly, capitalism has led to extraordinary economic growth, but the poorest half of the world's population have barely received any of that new income or consumption from growth. Their daily incomes have increased by only about two cents per year, okay? So very, very small, I mean, a tiny trickle down. Um, and remember, this is not because they live in some kind of economic backwater that's like disconnected from the world economy, right? Um, in fact, uh, they're very clearly deeply integrated into the circuits of global capitalism. They, uh, they provide most of the labor and resources that the world economy uses. I mean, think about, you know, who grows the bananas and tea and coffee that everyone consumes every day, who makes the clothes, who uh, digs up the coltan that's in all of our phones, who assembles our phones, et cetera, et cetera. Like, um, the world economy is totally reliant on the labor of the global poor. Uh, and yet they receive literally pennies in return for that. Not enough in most cases to lift them out of poverty according to any meaningful empirical threshold. So I think that the celebratory narrative really requires another look. Uh, we basically have a system that produces extraordinary wealth, but most of it is captured by rich countries and by rich individuals. While half of the world's population is kept in conditions of poverty, right? Despite the fact that they are the engines of the world economy. So I think that um, when you look at it this way, it's quite clear that our economic system is not serving the poor. In fact, it's failing the poor. Um, in fact, it's exploiting the poor. And that is not an acceptable reality from the perspective of, of justice. Um, and furthermore, I think that it's crucial to also recognize, if I may briefly, that the gains that have been achieved against poverty 
um, have, have mostly been delivered not by capitalism as such, right? But rather by progressive social movements that have demanded reforms, progressive governments that have delivered uh, uh, those reforms, or governments that have used state-led uh, policy to reduce poverty, right? With things like price controls, social transfers, um, and things like universal public services, okay? Those are the, um, those are the major drivers of poverty reduction, uh, as opposed to just kind of like the invisible hand kind of magnanimously improving a lot of the poor. Uh, so I think it's important to remember that. Um, and, and this is sort of borne out by the fact that if you just look at the evidence, it's clear that the vast majority of gains against poverty over the past several decades have come from China, right? Uh, which has not followed the Washington consensus neoliberal capitalist model and has used uh, social policy for most of its gains. Um, and then the other key example is of course the leftist states of Latin America, um, which have used social policy to, uh, to reduce poverty. So I think that this is important to recognize like the role of social, pol uh, of social policy in poverty reduction. Um, and that should really not be surprising to us actually, <laughs> because if you look at like the, the long history of capitalism over the past 500 years, it's very clear that, um, that, uh, that, that capitalism has been associated, uh, all else being equal, with, uh, with declines in social indicators pretty much wherever it's gone. I mean, think about what happened under the colonial period when capitalism is expanding to the global south. It's associated with mass dispossession, enslavement, famine, uh, malnutrition. Uh, we see a collapse in uh, wages and in uh, life expectancies and so on. It's really not until um, in Europe in the 1880s that we begin to see improvements in social indicators. And that comes primarily because of the labor movement, which is gaining power in those decades and, uh, and pushing for dramatic social reforms. And then in the global South, it's not until really the 1950s with the anti-colonial struggle and decolonization. Um, that, uh, that we begin to see really strong improvements in social outcomes. So, uh, so ultimately, I mean, we have to look at progressive social movements and, uh, and decolonization as the major drivers of progress when it comes to um, improvements in, uh, in social well-being. I guess most people would agree with the fact that uh, <clears throat> the poorer half of, of the planet uh, uh, would have to um, live better and consume more. But in this podcast series, we've been talking about um, trying to organize societies and, and the economy in a way that it respects uh, ecological boundaries. And when you accept both sides of these arguments, then you realize that basically the problem we're facing here is definitely a distributional problem. And, um, and in your book, uh, less is more, you write that roughly the richest 10% of, of global society is responsible for 50% of, of all uh, uh, CO2 emissions, while the poorer half of the world only for 10%. Um, so while these are, are shocking numbers, and, and from this perspective, it, it is clear that we must stop the richest to overuse resources, this ratio also suggests that significantly improving the income of the poor would still have to happen without increasing resource use. Now, can we strike this balance? Do you think it's possible or how is that possible? Yes, yeah, so this is basically the key, the key problem of our, of our time, right? Is that um, on a global level, we know that resource and energy use uh, cannot continue to increase. <laughs> uh, 
um, because of of, uh, of climate breakdown and ecological uh, and ecological degradation. But at the same time, we also have a, a problem of mass poverty, right? Which capitalism cannot address in and of itself, as we've seen. Um, and so we need to significantly increase the resource and energy use of the poor in order for them to meet human needs. Okay. So okay. So let's let's think about this in terms of uh, in terms of real resources. So we know that in order to keep global warming to no more than 1.5 or 2 degrees, we need to reduce global energy use. Okay. Um, and this is. Uh, you know, this is clear in, uh, in all of the IPCC scenarios that do not rely on negative emissions technologies to get us out of trouble, right? So if we leave aside negative emissions technologies, which scientists have routinely uh, questioned and criticized, then it's clear that in order to decarbonize fast enough um, to achieve the Paris climate targets, then we need a reduction in global energy use. Um, the idea here is basically that the less energy we use, the more quickly we can decarbonize the energy system, okay? So, and this is actually one of the most important facts to understand in climate economics, right? The less energy we use, the more quickly we can decarbonize uh, our economies. Um, now, the crucial thing is that our world is characterized by massive energy inequalities. And so we have to think about uh, distribution when it comes to the question of energy. Rich countries have extremely high levels of per capita energy use, which are in fact vastly in excess of what is required to meet human needs even at a high standard, while poor countries have very low levels of per capita energy use. Um, and in fact, about half of the, of the population of the global south does not have access to enough energy to meet basic needs, right? They effectively live in energy poverty, right? So, so that's, that's what our world looks like. Um, and furthermore, I should add to this picture the fact that there's in fact a net appropriation of energy uh, by rich countries from poor countries. So basically energy um, that is used in poor countries is consumed in rich countries because so much of the productive capacity of poor countries is organized around production for northern consumption. Uh, and so um, even countries that have a sufficient level of energy use in the global south uh, still have large levels of energy poverty because that energy is organized around production for northern growth. Okay, So we have to pay attention to that imperial dimension of the world economy as well where rich countries are basically sucking energy and resources out of poor countries. So, so given this fact, it's very clear that it's the rich countries that need to reduce energy use uh, quite dramatically to get back to sustainable levels. In other words, levels compatible with decarbonization for 1.5 or 2 degrees. While poor countries need to be able to reclaim uh, um, energy that is appropriated by rich countries and also increase their energy use to meet human needs, uh, right? So, so basically this is effectively uh, what we're calling for is, is a convergence scenario where energy use declines in the global north um, and increases in the global south, converging at a level that is consistent with, uh, with high levels of human well-being and also compatible with staying under 1.5 or two degrees, okay? That is the objective. And the same is true of material resource use. Let's not, use, let's not lose, uh, lose sight of that dimension as well. Um, exactly the same issues apply when it comes to material resources. Uh, resource use in the global north is very high in per capita terms. In fact, they're the major drivers. Excess resource use in rich countries is the major driver of global ecological breakdown. Um, whereas in poor countries, resource use is, uh, is very low. They're well within sustainable levels. So we need an equalization of this. We need rich countries to dramatically reduce resource use and poor, and poor countries to reclaim resources to meet human needs, um, converging at a level that is 
uh, that is uh, consistent with uh, with planetary boundaries and uh, and universal human well-being. Okay. Now the good news is that we know that it is possible to deliver good lives for all with a fraction of the resources and energy that high-income nations presently use. And this is such an important fact. Um, so this is not an impossible task. Uh, what this simply reveals to us is that there are huge chunks of production in high-income nations, huge chunks of the economy of high-income nations that are irrelevant, that are effectively irrelevant to, to, to human well-being. Okay. And this should not be surprising if you just look at the kinds of things that are produced. I mean, things like SUVs, private jets, you know, the military industrial complex, uh, fast fashion, um, you know, advertising, the practice of uh, planned obsolescence, whereby corporations uh, produce goods that are designed to need replacement uh, in order to increase product ter uh, turnover, things like that. Um, clearly, there are large sectors of the economy that are irrelevant to human well-being and can actively be scaled down. Okay. So this is really ultimately a matter of reorganizing production, productive capacity, and resource and energy use around meeting human needs and achieving well-being objectives, rather than around the interests of capitalism and growth and corporate expansion. Okay, so I think that's kind of the uh, the key here is we need is, is we need that convergence. You have been talking about inequality between the different parts of the world and there's obviously inequality between the different segments of society even within developed uh, countries um, so um, can you tell us about the tools that you can you can use or what degrowth proposes uh, that aim at closing the gap um, on the one hand between the different segments within one uh, um, society or, or region and um, and tools that handle the divide between the global north and the global south. Yeah. So okay. Um, I guess let me first sort of define what degrowth proposes here. Uh, so the idea again, right? The core idea is to basically scale down forms of production in rich countries that are socially less necessary. Okay. This is quite straightforward. Um, and in fact, most people, if you ask most people, they will clearly agree that this is like a rational uh, thing to do in the middle of, of a climate and ecological emergency, um, right? Uh, now, here's the thing, okay? Under normal conditions, uh, this would, of course, cause unemployment, right? Like, if you're going to be closing down SUV production factories, then obviously uh, there's going to be job losses. But the crucial thing here is that there's actually a simple way to prevent this, which um, scholars in ecological economics have proposed for several decades. Um, basically, it boils down to this. As the economy requires less labor, okay, you shorten the working week and distribute necessary work more evenly. Okay. Uh, so that was actually the topic of, of our last podcast. There you go. See, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, exactly. So um, so basically, uh, you know, as you as we require less production to meet to meet human needs, then you shorten the working week, distribute necessary work more evenly. You can also introduce something like a public job guarantee or a climate job guarantee to ensure that anyone who wants to can train to participate in the most important collective projects of our generation. Okay, so things like installing renewable energy capacity, retrofitting houses, um, regenerating ecosystems, and so on, right? There's a lot of work that needs to be done in a post-growth transition, uh, and it won't just happen on its own. Um, so, so policies like these, right, um, 
shortening the working week and, uh, and uh, a climate job guarantee would basically allow you to permanently end unemployment, okay? And this is important because one of the main reasons that politicians say that we need more growth is to reduce unemployment. But we know for a fact that, uh, first of all, that never works. There's always unemployment, right? Doesn't matter how much you grow, there will always be unemployment. And second, we know that we can actually permanently end unemployment with very basic social policy, okay? Um, so this is crucial. Now, uh, here is the question. People often ask me, whether there will be enough income in a degrowth scenario for everyone to meet their needs, right? Uh, and the answer is by definition, yes. Uh, and the reason is by definition is because income is always by definition the obverse of, the, of all of the prices of all of the stuff that the, the economy produces every year, okay? They're simply accounting uh, identities. Um, so as long as our economy is producing the things that people need, Okay, there will always by definition be enough income for everybody to buy those things. It is purely a matter of distribution, right? Um, so it's imperative that we make sure that purchasing power in the economy is distributed or shared in such a way that everyone can access what they need. And, there, and, and again, there are very straightforward policies for ensuring this is, this is possible. First of all, if you're going to have uh, a shorter working week and a job guarantee, that is going to increase wages. You can um, and and that's, an, that's a very powerful redistributive policy. And you can, uh, you can also introduce uh, living wage legislation, just to be sure. So living wages, um, you can also introduce uh, um, policies like a maximum income, uh, which, uh, which have been proposed now for quite a while. The idea basically is that any income that is in excess of a certain threshold gets taxed at very, very high rates. Um, you can also introduce uh, wealth taxes, et cetera, et cetera. The, this, all of this basically shifts income from, uh, from rich people to, uh, to the commons. You can also introduce universal public services. And in fact, this is a really big one in degrowth scholarship. The idea is you want to decommodify the core social sector of the economy. So basically things like not just, you know, healthcare and education, but also, um, you know, uh, housing, energy, uh, water, transportation, et cetera, et cetera, like the key things that people need in order to live good lives um, should be decommodified so that people can access them uh, and meet their needs without needing high levels of private income in order to do so, okay? So what this does is it basically improves the purchasing, the welfare purchasing power of income. It means that with any given quantity of income, you can buy more in terms of what is required to meet your needs. Uh, in terms of welfare, in terms of well-being, right? This is a very powerful intervention. Uh, and all of this, um, uh, all of these policies basically amount to, uh, in an abstract sense, to effectively this, uh, basically just reorganizing production uh, and resource and energy use around meeting human needs rather than around uh, elite consumption and capital accumulation. Now, as for the question of international inequalities, right? So, so, so if, these, if, if, these, if these ideas that I've mentioned just now address domestic inequalities, the question of international inequalities is a little bit different. Um, so I mentioned before like the importance of a kind of convergence in, uh, in energy and resource use in the world economy. Uh, so it's important in order to think about this, it's important to understand that there are, there are several major drivers of inequality between the global North and the global South today. Um, the main driver, uh, without going into too much detail, is simply that rich countries control the vast majority of the bargaining power 
when it comes to determining the rules of international trade and finance, okay? And not surprisingly, they set those rules in their own interests, okay? So uh, just for example, briefly, if you just look at the World Bank and the International Monetary Funds, which are the key institutions of international economic governance, um, in those institutions, the United States has a veto power over all major decisions. And the G7, okay, controls the majority of the voting power. Uh, so the global South, which of course has the vast majority of the world's population <laughs> and contributes the majority of the world's labor and resources, has a minority share of bargaining power in these key institutions of economic gov uh, governance. It's effectively a kind of apartheid system. And this is why the World Bank and IMF can get away with imposing you know, structural adjustment programs uh, on the global South, which has had devastating consequences for global South economies. Um, and has made it very difficult for them to, uh, to reduce poverty and, um, and develop uh, economic sovereignty and industrial capacity and so on, okay? Um, the main effect of all of this has been basically to artificially depress the prices of labor and resources in the global South. Um, and what that basically means uh, is that when it comes to international trade, for every units of, of embodied labor and resources that the South imports from the North, uh, they therefore have to export many more times uh, in order to pay for it, okay? And this, this drives a kind of net drain from the global South through unequal exchange, uh, what, what scholars call unequal exchange. And that's basically um, a drain of resources and energy from South to North that could be used to meet uh, human needs in the global South, but instead is being used to, uh, to prop up growthism and corporate expansion in the global North, okay? So the key antidote to this is simply that the global South should be able to use obvious policy measures to protect their economies and build their industrial capacity to meet domestic needs, right? So things like um, you know, tariffs, uh, subsidies for infant industries, public spending, to ensure people have access to healthcare and education, et cetera, et cetera. Nationalization of key resources so they can control those resources in their own national interests um, and so on and so forth, right? These are the policies that we know to work. They were used successfully during the 1950s, 60s and 70s by global South governments uh, in the immediate post-colonial era. Um, these policies were dismantled in the 1980s and 1990s by structural adjustment programs, okay? Imposed by the World Bank and IMF. Um, and so we need to reverse that. We need to, uh, we need to ensure that global South countries have the right to take unilateral action to restore those policies, those progressive economic policies, without being punished uh, or sanctioned by, um, by Northern states uh, or financial institutions. Let me bring in a personal perspective. <clears throat> I am Hungarian and now I, I live and work in Hungary. And uh, when talking about these um, crucial interventions, I constantly see how the notion of redistribution, just the thought of redistribution and, and many, many of, of what you've, uh, you've talked about, leaves a really bitter taste in, in those, those people's mouth who, who actually lived through socialist regimes. How, how would you ascertain such people that the, the redistribution interventions proposed by degrowth actually differs from, from those that had gone pear-shaped in the past um, in, uh, well, anti-democratic uh, uh, 
settings. Mm. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's that's really key. Uh, the key is, in fact, that they are anti-democratic settings, right? Um, so, okay. So, uh, first of all, let me say this: we know that a uh, that a fair distribution of income is highly popular wherever it's been polled in high-income nations, right? In fact, not just a fair distribution of income, but most of the policies that we've proposed and which I've discussed are highly popular. Things like um, a shorter working week, a job guarantee, you know, universal public services, uh, and so on and so forth, um, living wages, et cetera, um, you know, more progressive taxation. These are very highly popular policies. Um, and so, uh, and so one should ask, like, look, I mean, if, if they're popular, then we should see them uh, being enacted. Of course, the reason we don't is because our governments are captured by elite interests. Uh, they're not really democratic, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, so, but the point is that a fair distribution of income is clearly compatible with, um, with democratic desire. In fact, virtually everywhere uh, where you have um, empirical studies of direct democracy, it becomes clear that one of the first things that people want to do is, uh, is achieve a fair distribution of income and resources. Um, so that's important. Uh, now, as for the USSR, um, I think the key thing to recognize here is that the, uh, the, 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 the obvious catastrophe of that regime was due to the facts uh, not that it had a fair, a fair distribution of income or resources or whatever, but rather that it was, as you pointed out, totalitarian and, uh, and totally uh, undemocratic, right? Um, furthermore, we should also note that the USSR was a growthist regime. Um, it, uh, it, it sort of mutated into this machine that was obsessed with, <laughs> that was obsessed with growth and, and industrial expansion uh, and, and in service of that end was willing to heavily exploit labor and heavily exploits ecology. Uh, and so in this respect, it actually doesn't differ so much really from, uh, from, from capitalist regimes. Um, it was basically, and, and this is why scholars have, have sort of defined it as a kind of state capitalist regime in many respects, okay? Um, so, so I think that's the, you know, the key thing to recognize here uh, is that the USSR does not provide a model for the kind of future that we need. And its failure should not prevent us from imagining a fairer and more just society. I mean, clearly we can't be, uh, we can't be captive to, um, to the systems of the past as we imagine uh, a better future. When you talked about um, uh, the, the possible, the potential tools, uh, and you also mentioned like universal basic services, um, you pointed to, to a key um, aspect in a, in a degrowth transition, that is to, to make a distinction between ownership, like private ownership of vital resources, and access to these resources. Um, so how could we limit excessive ownership and provide wider access? How can we achieve, uh, I quite like uh, George Monbiot's um, uh, idea of, of private sufficiency and public luxury. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm a big supporter of that, and it's uh, and that idea is very core to um, to degrowth and eco socialist thought. Uh, so, um, so yeah, actually, there's there's sort of several things going on here that are worth that are worth exploring. Um, I mentioned before that that's, uh, that a core objective is to sort of decommodify the the key social goods that people require to live good lives, right? Um, now, doing that has several powerful effects. As I mentioned uh, uh, earlier, first of all, 
of course. It allows people to access the goods that they need to live well without needing uh, high levels of private income to do so, okay? So imagine, for example, um, uh, if you live in a country where housing is very expensive, uh, then you will have to work harder than you otherwise, I mean, not harder, but uh, longer and earn more than you otherwise might need to in order to uh, access that basic good that is necessary for your survival. If you live in a country where, um, where housing is a, public, is a public good or where there's rent controls or, uh, or other kinds of public provisioning mechanisms, then, um, then clearly you're under less pressure to, uh, to work beyond what is otherwise uh, required to meet that, that core need, okay? So, so that's very powerful. Um, uh, furthermore, we also know that, that when it comes to public provisioning, uh, that, um, that's, uh, that public forms of provisioning tend almost always to be more resource and energy efficient and actually more cost-effective than private forms of, of provisioning. And that's clear when it comes to things like, obviously transportation is the major one, uh, clearly public transit is much more resource, energy, and cost efficient um, when it comes to passenger kilometers than private transportation is. And this has been established by you know, study after study. But it's true also of things like recreation facilities. I mean, obviously, if you have, um, if you, have uh, you know, a public recreation facility, that's much more resource efficient than everybody having their own private recreation facility um, or backyards big enough to house such a facility, et cetera, et cetera. It's true also of, of water. I mean, we know that's obviously bottled water, uh, a kind of private water provision is, uh, is much more resource intensive than, than public water provisioning. Um, we know that public ownership of water, of water supplies actually um, is more water efficient, <laughs> less wasteful than, uh, than private ownership of public water supplies. Um, so over and over, we see these, these sort of resource efficiencies when it comes to, when it comes to public provisioning. And that's very powerful to, um, to see. Uh, so yeah, so I think these are, these are really key. And I think that, um, you know, if you think about the history of capitalism more deeply, uh, it's clear that like one of the engines uh, of perpetual capitalist growth is the fact that it always produces artificial scarcities, right? So it's, it's an incredibly productive system and generates a lot of material outputs. Um, but at the same time, it maintains people in conditions of, of, uh, of poverty or scarcity, right? And that's clear if you look at, say, the U.S., where, um, where despite it being one of, one of the richest countries in the world, you know, um, almost half the population does not have adequate access to things like healthcare, or even or or even decent housing, right? Uh, so there's still like widespread poverty in in uh, in capitalist countries like the U.S., despite the fact that they're extremely productive. And one of the reasons for that is that there's this constant enclosure of public goods uh, that's done for the sake of growth, right? Done for the sake of growth in two senses: first, by privatizing public goods, you increase the GDP, and of course, increase corporate profits. Um, and second, by enclosing public goods in that way, um, you generate pressures for people to, to work and produce more uh, in order to access uh, public goods that they used to receive for free, right? And that generates a kind of um, expansionist tendency uh, whereby there's this constant catch up, right? We have to constantly produce more and more simply in order for people to access basic, basic goods, which is, uh, which is obviously clearly irrational. Um, and so it's clear that a kind of de-enclosure of the commons uh, a kind of de-enclosure of public goods uh, takes pressure out, like the growthist pressure out of the economy and allows people to, um, 
to uh, to meet human needs without uh, without uh, such uh, excessive levels of of production, and that's uh, that's very powerful. Well, and um, to close out this episode, I am asking you the question I ask all my guests: What is your rebellion? Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think uh, I think the thing that mostly motivates me is simply uh, the fact that. <laughs> that uh, there are clear kind of colonial or imperial dimensions to the ecological crisis. And I think this is not adequately accounted for in existing public discourse. Um, it's obvious that it's the rich countries of the global north that are overwhelmingly responsible for driving the crisis, not just in terms of climate change, but also, uh, but also other forms of ecological breakdown. Um, and at the same time, the impacts of that, of that uh, crisis, of these, of these crises, uh, fall disproportionately on uh, on the global south, right? So it's not just that there are that uh, that's that ecological breakdown is um, is being driven by by uh, by processes of atmospheric and ecosystem colonization, but also that um, that the effects of this crisis are falling along colonial lines. Uh, and so I think that that really, I mean, in the face of this of this crisis, a kind of anti-colonial struggle is required, um, a struggle that will. Uh, uh, that will um, allow uh, the people of the global south to reclaim access to uh, a habitable planet and to the resources they need uh, to live good lives. Um, but this will require a dramatic shift in uh, in the economies of the global north, and I think that's that's something we have to um, we have to hold front and center. Well, many thanks to you, Jason, and thanks to all of you for spending time with us. Stay tuned with us for our next episode. Uh, bye, Jason. Bye. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the podcast series of the European Society for Ecological Economics. If you like the conversation and your work is related to ecological economics in any discipline, consider becoming a member of our society to stay connected. If you are ready to discuss the topic, join our Facebook group called European Society for Ecological Economics.